uh, our sister Carmela Phillips, I would now like to invite you to the front this school year, as you well know by now. We are interviewing uh, guests and students and church members with a series of questions as a way to introduce each sermon, which is really about our shared human story, and we're getting to know some individuals along the way a little bit better. And I have always uh, loved Carmela because for six years now, she regularly on Sabbath greets me warmly and gives me a hug, which I appreciate greatly. And therefore, I'm going to be gentle today. Thanks. There will be no harsh surprises. We'll just play it straight. Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> Question number one. What sound or noise do you love? The sound of children playing, singing, laughing. Just children. They're wonderful. What sound or noise do you hate? Um, you know, I grew up in the old days with um, the missionary volunteer stuff, and we had to learn different things, and one of them was the MV Pledge, I think it was called. And one statement there stays with me, and that is to walk softly in the sanctuary. So I don't like the clicking of heels. When friends visit from out of town, where do you take them to eat and why? My house, because I, I do pretty well. Ask <laughs> <laughs> <I> Solita. <laughs> yes, I can testify to this as a fact. Um, if you inherited a large sum of money, what would be your first purchase? Nothing. I won't buy anything. I... Um, I graduated from Walla Walla College, which is now Walla Walla University, and our children graduated from there as well. And uh, the college has been quite instrumental in guiding us to where we want to be, or where we are now. So, as um, to show my gratitude, should I be endowed with a lot of money? I'm talking a lot. I'll be giving it to the college. You know, one building here, the library, I look at that thing quite frequently and I wish, I wish I had money. I'll do something about that. I'll help to do something about that. So that's where my money will go. Not the senior pastor's office. No. So much, okay. <laughs> um, what quality do you appreciate most in people? Uh, a vibrant spirit, um, that uh, outgoing, inviting spirit that says, you know, life is okay. There are lots of problems, but life is all right. We can enjoy it. If you were a person in Scripture, who would you be? Vashti. Um, <laughs> you know her. Uh, she said no, and she meant it. <laughs> and she had good reason. She realized that her husband was not thinking at all. <laughs> so she said no. And um, I like that spirit. <laughs> Who is your least favorite person in Scripture other than the devil? <laughs> you know, Job had some friends. 
They did best when they kept their mouths shut. As soon as they opened their mouths, they blew it. And um, the youngest one among them especially was, he was just a cocky guy, so I don't appreciate that group. <laughs> what energizes you? People. People. I love being with people. Well, I like to talk for one thing. And um, I like to greet people, you know, so people energize me. What makes you cry? Uh, hurting young people, hurting children. You know, I taught for a bit. And I had to spend a fair amount of time um, consoling students for one reason or the other. And um, a lot of that type of involvement made me cry, made me very sad. Last question. What do you hope to hear God say to you when you arrive in heaven? Thank you for trying. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Carmela. Let's thank Carmela this morning. <laughs> well, it's been a couple of weeks since we have been on this series, so I think a bit of a reminder of where we are is in order. The series, the story, looking at the grand human epic, our story. And on the next page, you'll see uh, where we are in this particular sermonic journey. We spent several weeks looking at our beginnings in Genesis, a few weeks in Old Testament history, several weeks pausing at that most critical time, the arrival of Jesus. And now we move into Christian church history. And of course, as you might imagine, this is a monumental task to try to accomplish something worthwhile in four weeks. Instead of dividing it up in segments of 500 years, I thought instead we might reflect upon geography. And so for the next four weeks, this is what it will look like. First, we will turn to the north, uh, a lesson from Christian Europe. Then uh, to the south, looking at Africa, South America, uh, to the east of Asia, and finally to North America, in the West. And uh, from those, for those from Australia, and I know there's a couple of you present, well, perhaps Asia Pacific will work for the East. How about that along the way? A lesson from the Christian North, from Europe. To launch us, uh, a little bit of a quiz. Here goes. My wife, Nicole, the Apostle Paul, and the question is, Nicole, Paul, neither or both. And uh, young ministers out there always ask permission before trying something like this up front. As I did. Question number one. Experienced a blind date which changed life forever. And the answer, if you're thinking about it, is both. Question two, often proclaimed victory over the law. <laughs> Let me just say that only one of us talks our way out of tickets in this family. Three, is formally trained in a European language. My wife was an English major here, and of course Paul had his own education in Greek. Question four, once said, Run in such a way as to get the prize. 
this is in the writings of Paul, and also when I attempted to run with my marathoner spouse, she looked at me and said something akin to, Alex, pick it up, run in such a way as to get the prize. Question five, that would be both. Question five is well known for prolific text messaging. And of course, in a different way, they both were into the text, into a fair amount of messages through those texts. Six, believes that wives should submit to their husbands in everything. <laughs> and that husbands should submit to their wives in everything. And if you carefully read Ephesians, you realize the answer is most clearly both. Final question, which will launch us into our query, talks passionately and regularly about a desire to go to Italy. And the answer is both. The year is 56 AD. Paul writes a letter from Corinth to the church at Rome. To all in Rome, he says, who are loved by God and called to be His holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of His Son, is my witness. How constantly I remember you, Romans, in my prayers at all times. And I pray now at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you, to be with you. I long to see you. And sure enough, Paul will go. In the period of 57 to 59 A.D., we read that Paul is arrested and imprisoned in Jerusalem. He goes through a series of trials, moved to Caesarea, and then shipped famously to Rome, where he will experience snakebite and shipwreck, among other things. Perhaps you have this familiar map in the back of your Bible, Paul's travels to Rome. Between 60 and 62, we know that Paul is in chains in Rome, house arrest. It is at this time that he writes Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and a letter to Philemon. We believe that he is released in 62 AD, and for a couple of years, Paul experiences acquittal and freedom. But then in a famous, or shall I say in an infamous year, in 64 A.D., Nero burns Rome, and he begins to torture and kill Christians. Paul is again arrested and imprisoned. He writes two letters to Timothy, a letter to Titus, and Christian tradition suggests that he is beheaded in this era. Unpacking these years a bit, people, a couple pieces of artwork. First, we see Nero watching Rome burn. Historians believe the fire is likely set because Nero wishes to restore part of Rome, and so he destroys a section of it that he sees as undesirable. 
But word travels among the populace that Nero has performed this act. The populace not happy with the actions of their Caesar. He needs to deflect a scapegoat. Is at hand an easy target, the Christians. And the historical accounts of the atrocities which happen in the community of Christianity are horrifying. It's important, I think, for us to remember this story. The historian Tacitus, who lived approximately between 60 and 120 A.D., writes about this experience, and I wish to share with you from the first century his words. Consequently, to get rid of the report, that is, that he had set the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, referring to Jesus, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of the procurators, Pontius Pilatus, and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for a moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, Christianity, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, that is setting fire to it, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination. When daylight had expired, Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle and was exhibiting a show in the circus while he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. Hence, even for criminals who deserved extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of compassion, for it was not as it seemed for the public good, but to glut one man's cruelty that they were being destroyed. And the historian Eusebius suggests that Paul is beheaded during this reign of terror, and Peter is crucified. It seems at this point in the story, we would have to wonder, is Christianity being snuffed out for good? Is it finished? But we remember that parabolic prophecy of Jesus who said the kingdom of heaven is like a tiny mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds. But it will one day grow to be a tree without parallel. Could it be that Jesus is predicting what is to come? The small seed that has been planted. It may not seem like much in 64 AD, but just watch, just wait, have confidence 
Jesus says. The seed has been planted. The seed has been planted at the capital of the empire. And the world and Europe will never be the same. I refer you to the historian Bruce Shelley, who writes, Christianity began as a tiny offshoot of Judaism. Three centuries later, it became the favored and eventually the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. Despite widespread and determined efforts to eliminate the new faith, it survived and grew. By the reign of Constantine, the first Christian emperor, there were churches in every large town in the empire and in places as distant from each other as Britain, Carthage, and Persia. And perhaps you remember from school days this map of the Roman Empire at its greatest extent in Africa and Asia, but also substantially in Europe all the way north to the British Isles. And historians tell us that much of this Christian growth geographically took place even before Constantine made Christianity the rule. We have evidence of the expansiveness of the Roman Empire. This picture, uh, my wife and I in Chester, Wales, five years ago for a camp meeting. A wall, a Roman wall dating to 80 A.D. Unbelievable. And then we see the breadcrumbs of early Christianity. This picture, St. Martin's Church in Canterbury, England, uh, dating all the way back to 580 A.D., regarded as the oldest church in England, Roman stone, a part of the edifice. We have this bit from Eusebius, Christian historian in 314 A.D., who would write, the apostles passed beyond the ocean to the isles called the Britannic Isles, evidence that Christianity had gone all the way north. Or this recent discovery underneath a parking lot in Leicester, England, a burial ground which includes historians and archaeologists believe a Christian grave with a ring on the skeleton likely marking a Christian. Or how about this, a drawing of Jesus back in that capital city, the catacombs of Rome, about 375 A.D. Take a trip to Europe and you see it everywhere, evidence of the explosive growth of Christianity. I love this photograph of a Celtic cemetery in Scotland. And I think if you just take it in a moment and reflect on Christianity in Europe, the sweep of it is staggering. You realize that just a hundred years ago, at the beginning of the 20th century, still two-thirds of Christianity hailed from the European continent. The first 1900 years of Christian church history really dominated by the European scene. Oh, sure, lots of horrible things to say. The manipulation of religion, the abuses of popes, nationalistic wars driven by the Christian religion, heresies, theological distortions. It's been a checkered history. But where would we be? What would our story be today without the theology, the missionary movements, 
the construction of cathedrals and churches, of art and music, where would we be to simply eliminate the rich European chapter of the Christian movement? It's part of our story. So I guess the question becomes then, what lessons might we learn? And I'd like to particularly turn to those first centuries before Constantine got his fingerprints on the religion. Why is it that it survived, that it was not merely snuffed out? In fact, it did quite well against all odds. Again, I'd like to turn to Professor Shelley. He makes four observations about why Christianity thrived, and I think maybe we could take some cues for our own generation. Number one, he says Christians were moved by a burning conviction. The event had happened. God had invaded time. Those first Christians, he says, were consumed with the blessed reality that God had poured himself out in the person of Jesus Christ. In many ways, they were not distracted by other things. Let's think of it this way. I want you to imagine a young couple becomes engaged and they tell uh, the pastor whom they're having premarital counseling with uh, the story of how they came together and it was centered around a particular hobby. Let's say in this case, a love of horses. They love to ride horses, go to horse shows. They would travel and see horses. This particular hobby is what brought them together. Well, imagine a few years later that... uh, that couple comes back to that same minister and they're having marriage problems. And you ask them, well, tell me about your lives. And once again, they repeat this same story of their mutual enthusiasm for the same hobby, horses. Where they go and uh, the horses they own and, and, and they even describe other hobbies that they share as a mutual concern. And, and they speak about these hobbies with great passion. But then you start to realize, as a minister trying to decipher what the problem is, they have no passion for one another at all. They love the hobbies. They share mutual interests. But there's no love affair between the two. You see, I think that's the danger for us as sophisticated Christians so many years later. I think the hobbies of God are amazingly important, by the way. I think theology and doctrine and mission and tradition, I think all of these things that matter deeply to God should, of course, matter to us. But just because you and I are enthusiastic about the same things that God is enthusiastic about does not mean that we are in a good place. Just because I believe in the doctrines that God believes in does not mean, in fact, that I am engaged in a rich personal relationship with Jesus. All of the hobbies absent the relationship breed trouble. Shelley says, point one, that early movement was consumed with Jesus. They believed to the core of their heart and to the very center of their being, that God had revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth. And nothing else, 
despite the fact that many other things important, nothing else could crowd out that core experience. Second, Shelley observes of those early Christians, the act of love of God met the deeply felt needs of people. Just like in today's age, there were many theories going around about how to live a happy, productive, fulfilled life. But just like in today's age, many, if not all, of those perspectives were found wanting. So here comes a group of people preaching that God loves you a whole different way to live. Perhaps we might playfully consider the good news uh, this way. I love this particular cartoon. The dog, uh, the chained dog, is saying to the unchained cat, they don't keep you on a leash because they want you to run away. But of course the dog is missing the point. Christians came with a whole new message. You are no longer in chains. The chains of philosophies and perspectives about how to live life. The chains of all the Greek and Roman gods that were so unsatisfying. The Christians came and said, God, the God who created the universe loves you. And this love is a free gift of grace. You are free. Take off the chains. Shelley says this was enormously attractive to so many people, and particularly those who were enslaved in the Roman Empire who had no hope. Number one, a total focus on Jesus. Number two, a rich appreciation for the love of God given by grace. Three, Shelley observes that the practical expression of Christian love was probably among the most powerful causes of Christian success. The church was known as a community that loved other people and loved one another. Three examples from that period. Tertullian tells us that the pagans would remark, see how these Christians love one another? They were astonished. Another practice of Christians that got the world's attention is how carefully they treated the burial of the dead. In a time when often human beings were just cast to the wayside uh, upon their death, the Christians believed that human beings were so valuable that they should be treated with respect. Like Tantius, the Christian North African scholar, wrote, We will not allow the image and creation of God to be thrown to the wild beast and the birds as their prey. It must be given back to the earth from which it was taken. And this from the Emperor Julian, who detested Christianity. He says Christianity has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who's a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well. Well, those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Those first Christians exploded in growth. They were so resilient, Shelley said, first because they had an unequivocal dedication to Jesus. They celebrated the love of God as a gift of grace, and they were known as a church, first and foremost, that loved one another and loved their world. Finally, 
Shelley says that it was persecution. Persecution in many instances helped to publicize the Christian faith. If men and women were so dedicated to this cause, to be willing to give all of their money, all of their relationships, their very lives to it, well, maybe we should at least pay attention. Why would they be so extreme? And so we turn to that magisterial letter written from a Roman prison from Paul to the church at Philippi. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. The power of martyrdom. The power of literally testifying with everything you've got to the belief of this person and this message. So now we land it. Here we are, Christians, the year of our Lord, 2015. What are we going to do with our era? Will we make sure that the priority is absolutely Jesus Christ? Will we dedicate ourselves to the love of God given to us freely? Will we be known because we love each other and we love our world well? And will we be known as people who literally are willing to give everything for the greatest cause in the world? Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer were burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford, England in 1555. They were tied side by side, and when the fire was lit at their feet, Latimer said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, and I trust it shall never be put out.